Welcome to C3 Los Angeles. We exist to help you know God, find meaningful relationships, get active in serving, and grow in leadership. If you'd like to contribute financially to the vision of C3LA, head to c3losangeles.com slash give. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 3. For Jesus has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Uh, One more scripture in Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 14 says, If a king faithfully judges the poor, and by the way, that word judge right there is, uh, that's not a negative connotation. Oftentimes we we think kind of negatively when we hear that. It means govern. If a king faithfully governs the poor, judges the poor, decrees a word over the poor, then his throne will be established forever. If a king faithfully judges the poor, then his throne will be established forever. Um, Why don't you write down the title of the message today. Let's call it, uh, Worthy of Your Blessing. Worthy of Your Blessing. Father, we thank you for this word. I pray, God, that you help me to deliver it as you gave it to me, that it would be a great blessing to the people in this room and the people who are in their worlds. In Jesus' name we pray. And everybody said, Amen and Amen. Amazing. Come on, yeah, give Jesus praise one last time. Thank you, worship team. Y'all may be seated. Come on, let's honor these guys. We love them. They're great. They do an awesome job every single week leading us into the presence. So good. Do you like these new lights? They're great, right? They're exciting. They're like lightsabers. Um, so yeah, we've been on this, this theme of the worthiness of Jesus uh, for the last few weeks and talking about the things uh, that he's worthy of. And something that occurred to me this last week as I was reflecting on the previous week's messages is um, this idea that the worth that we ascribe to Jesus is so contingent and dependent upon who we know him to be. So, for example, we talked about how he's worthy of our first allegiance and then how he's worthy of our obedience and those two revelations are, are really dependent upon, they are founded upon the fact that I know Jesus as Lord. Uh, when, I'm, when I'm giving him my obedience and when I'm giving him my allegiance, that means that there's a standing yes on the inside of me to him because I know him to be the Lord of my life. And I know that the phrase, no Lord, just simply doesn't work. The two words nullify one another. Because if Jesus is Lord, I cannot say no. And if I can say no, then he's not my Lord. So, so the obedience and the allegiance that I give him, it stands on the foundation of me knowing him as my Lord. Um, last week we talked about how he's worthy of the words that we speak. And in the same way, uh, we will only speak life-giving words to the extent that we know Jesus is a, re- is a redeemer. If I know Jesus is a redeemer of all those that seem without hope, then it won't matter how hopeless somebody seems, I'll still speak life-giving words over that person. So it's who I know him to be, who I know him to be that, that helps determine um, what I determine he is worthy of. To, today I want to talk to you, uh, to all the people who know Jesus or want to get the revelation of knowing Jesus as the king. Jesus is Lord and Jesus is Redeemer. Jesus is many things and among those things is the fact that Jesus is the King. 
The Apostle Paul said in 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 17 that um, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Uh, Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, it says, but of the Son, he, the Father, says, your throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of uprightness is the scepter of your kingdom. Revelation chapter 19 and verse 16 says, on his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written. So Jesus has a tattoo on his thigh, which is epic. And that name is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. So all three of these verses, but especially that last one, they let us know um, that, that Jesus is not just a king, but Jesus is in fact the king. He is the king of all ages. He is the king with an unceasing throne. Uh, he, is, he is the, uh, the, the king of kings. And it's important you understand that, that he is He is exceedingly greater than anything that might come into your mind when you think of a king. That's important to know because there's all kinds of images that we might conjure up when we hear the word king. Maybe you think of something kind of medieval or a bit grimy, maybe like Monty Python on the Holy Grail type of king. Maybe you think of a more elegant palace. Maybe you think of Game of Thrones. I don't know, but whatever it is that comes into your mind when you think of a king, I can promise you that all of it pales in comparison to the splendor and the majesty of King Jesus. And it's kind of an unfair comparison because King Jesus is God and all other kings are just people. But even if you were to set that fact aside and just compare the kingdoms, you would see that all other kingdoms, that their shortfall is immediately identifiable when compared to the kingdom of Jesus. And that's not for lack of effort by all the other kings. Because what a king desires is to build a splendid kingdom. Because the glory of a king is seen in the splendor of the kingdom. Uh, A king without a kingdom is just dreaming. A king with a dilapidated kingdom uh, doesn't really have anything to boast about. And that's why kings, their desire is to build a kingdom that speaks of their glory. That's why kings, they spend fortunes on building these structures that push the envelope, the limit of the architectural possibilities of their day. It's why kings build these colossal armies so that they can expand their kingdom and take over foreign territories and conquer other people so that they can amass more population and more wealth unto their name because the glory of the king is seen in the splendor of the kingdom. Now, now as much as the kingdom of Jesus works completely differently to the kingdoms of this world, it is still true that the glory of King Jesus is seen in the splendor of his kingdom. It, It just works completely the opposite. You see, because the thing about King Jesus is he is the only king who is glorious apart from any external thing. You take a king or a queen and you strip them of their crown, their fine clothing, their palace, their wealth, their land, their people, and you are left with just another ordinary person. It's the stuff that holds, the stuff that validates the glory of that king or queen. But, but Jesus is unique in that he is glorious all by himself. He, he doesn't need his glory validated by any external thing. That's so true, in fact, that on the evening before his crucifixion, Jesus prayed in John 17 and verse 5. He said, and now Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you 
before the world existed. So, so Jesus already had all glory before he had a world to speak of that glory. And what that tells us is that the kingdom Jesus came to announce and initiate and has been building for the last 2,000 years isn't for the purpose of validating his glory. It's simply for the purpose of reflecting his glory. In other words, the kingdom of Jesus is not glory proven because Jesus is insecure. The kingdom of Jesus is glory given because Jesus is generous and he seeks to give and share his glory with his kingdom. And that causes you to ask the question of what does the kingdom of Jesus consist? Because Jesus sits on a throne, but his kingdom does not consist of his throne. And you read in the scriptures that Jesus is not short on wealth and and precious material. But in the book of Revelation, you see that it's all crystal clear, letting us know that his kingdom does not consist of his wealth. The kingdom of Jesus, of course, consists of people. In all other kingdoms, people are often... um, they are, they are an expendable resource to be used in the king's pursuit of some reward. But in the kingdom of Jesus, the people aren't a resource to reach a reward. The people are the reward. You've got to get that deep down in your spirit that you are the reward God has chosen. That, that revelation right there, is, it's got to come alive as truth in your heart and mind because it will change the way you think about your entire existence. In fact, this is so true that the Apostle Paul, he wrote to the church in Ephesus and he prayed this prayer in Ephesians chapter 1 and verse 18, having the eyes of your heart enlightened that you may know what is the hope to which he's called you, what are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints, what is God's reward in the the believer. What is God's inheritance in the church? Now, what Paul is saying there literally is that the Ephesian believers would have the eyes of their heart open to the fact that they are what God is most enthusiastic, most excited, most passionate about, that they are God's riches and God's reward. You got to get that revelation. Why would Paul pray it? Because it will change your life. As soon as you understand that you are not God's means to reach some other end, but are in fact the chosen end of his unlimited means, that will bring you into a completely different paradigm of how you think about you, yourself, and I. It will change everything for you. Oh, I'm glad eight people believe it. If you're new, you're like, is he always this way? And the answer is yes, I am always this Wait, you got to believe this, friends, that you are God's chosen reward. His, his inheritance is, it's you. He's chosen you to, to be his own. Which means that what God does in your life, it's not about what you are worthy of. What God does in your life is about what he is worthy of. Because you belong to him. you got to understand that that. You, you are not some resource that Jesus is using to reach some adornment that validates his glory. But in fact, Jesus is adorning you because your adornment is his glory. You got to get that deep down within you. I love what the theologian C.S. Lewis said. You know C.S. Lewis? You read The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe? He's awesome. Famous theologian and fiction author. He said this, imagine yourself as a living house. God comes in to rebuild that house. At first, perhaps you can understand what he's doing. He's getting the drains right. He's stopping the leaks in the roof and so on. You knew that those jobs needed doing, so you are not surprised. And that right there is the end of most of our understanding of the gospel. 
we think that we come to Jesus and he repairs all the broken pieces and then we just kind of wait around till we go to a better place once we leave this, this life. But that's not really what happens. It says that, but presently God starts knocking the house about in a way that hurts abominably and does not seem to make any sense. What on earth is he up to? The explanation is that he is building quite a different house from the one that you thought of. Throwing out a new wing here, putting on an extra floor there, running up towers, making courtyards. You thought you were being made into a decent little cottage, but he is building a palace because he intends to come and live in it himself. That right there speaks to the mentality that you and I ought to have about our lives, that what God is building in us is not ultimately about what you're worthy of. It's ultimately about what he is worthy of because you are the house in which he himself inhabits. So you got to ask yourself the question, what is he worthy of? So often we shrink the possibility of, of, of our own lives down and we do that under the guise of piety. It's more religious. Or we do it under the guise of a safe life. Maybe we do it because we think that that's all the gospel is really capable of. Maybe we do it because secretly we believe that a small life is all we truly deserve, but that's not the gospel. The gospel is the fact that you and I are being crafted into a garment that is fit for the king of kings. Not just any king, but the king of all ages, but the king with an unceasing throne we're being crafted into what he puts on you ever think about the fact that when it comes to the idea of the spirit of God living on the inside of you it's not you putting on the spirit it's the spirit putting on you it's the spirit coming to live on the inside of you so that he is the, he's in the command center. He's in the control center of your life. The spirit of God is wearing you, co-laboring with you. Not like you have to beg him and ask him to come and rest on you, but the spirit of God is with you so powerfully because God has made you into an abode, a home in which he desires to inhabit. Therefore, what happens in your world? The blessing, the breakthrough, the miracles, they are not about what you deserve. It's not about what you're owed. You can stop disqualifying yourself from receiving them because it's not about what you deserve. It's about what he deserves. I love Proverbs chapter 29 and verse 14. We read it at the start. It says, if a king faithfully judges the poor, his throne will be established forever. If a king faithfully judges the poor, that's the blessing of the poor, his throne will be established forever. That's the glory of the king. Now, this is so much more than a proverb about how a king should take care of the less fortunate of his kingdom. It's really a prophetic statement about Jesus because the kingdom of Jesus is the only king that has an unceasing throne. And that's what it says is the outcome, right? That the, the faithfully judging the poor equals an unceasing throne. In Hebrews chapter 1 and verse 8, which we read at the start, let us know that he is the only king who has received an unceasing throne. Are we on the same page, ladies and gentlemen? So Jesus has received that unceasing throne and one of the reasons for that is shown to us in this proverb. And one of those reasons is because he is the only one who has faithfully judged and continues to faithfully judge, faithfully govern the poor. Now, who are the poor? Because it's not just talking about those who lack material wealth. It's actually talking about the poor in spirit 
that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 5 and verse 3 when he said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Those who recognize their own spiritual bankruptcy and depravity apart from Savior and King Jesus, they will be blessed and inherit, receive the kingdom of heaven. That's who the poor are. Now, those are the people that Jesus is faithfully governing, faithfully judging. Now, when it says that he's doing this faithfully, the question then has to be asked, who is he being faithful to? Because it's not to us. You and I are not some unfortunate people who have paid our dues and now are owed something better than our current experience. We are the people who rejected Jesus time and again in favor of lesser things. So in saying that he's being faithful, it's not talking about that he's being faithful to who you are and what you're owed. What it's talking about is how he's being faithful to who he is and what he's owed. What he purchased. And what he purchased on the cross with the shedding of his own blood was your salvation, your freedom freedom, your redemption, your breakthrough, your blessing, your abundance, your eternal life. That's what Jesus purchased for you. So when you count yourself unworthy of walking in that reality, when you disqualify yourself from experiencing that reality, you're not actually robbing you. You didn't pay for it. You're robbing Jesus because he bought it with his own blood. So I say it again that whatever happens in your world, it's not about what you are worthy of or who you are. It's about who he is and what he is worthy of. And he is worthy of every great thing that could happen to you. He is worthy of every blessing that could come into your life. He's worthy of you having an amazing marriage. He is worthy of you having the most awesome marriage, like the, just the most epic marriage, sex every night, out to, oh, he's, he's worthy of the whole, like the best, did I offend some people just then? I don't even care. Married sex is the best sex, everybody. Every other kind of sex is full of shame, condemnation, and guilt, but when you put a ring on, I'm just letting you know, Jesus is worthy of you having an awesome marriage. So what if you look at your resume and you see the mistakes that you've made and you determine that you're not worthy of an awesome marriage? It's not about what you're worthy of. And Jesus is worthy of you having a marriage that is filled with his restorative power and the joy of his kingdom. Jesus is worthy of you having an awesome career. So what if you feel ill-equipped and underqualified? Stop sabotaging your growth just because you think other people are able to do the work better. Jesus is worthy of you having a career that speaks to the fact that he can open any door for anybody. Jesus is worthy of you owning a home in Los Angeles, a sanctuary of peace, a place where friendships are formed and fostered. So what if you'll never be able to save the down payment? Jesus is worthy of you owning a home that you look forward to returning to each day that people love to gather in that's an outpost for ministry and he's not bound by the economy of the world to get it done Jesus is worthy of your healing by his stripes you've been healed so what if your mistakes led to your physical ailment he's worthy of 
He is worthy of every good and perfect gift that comes down from the Father of lights with whom there is no shadow or variation due to change. And entering into your life, it's about what he's paid for, ladies and gentlemen. Stop trying to rob him of the thing that belongs to him. Your blessing, your breakthrough, your abundance, he bought it. Give it to him by living in it. Change the way that you think. Renew your mind. Do not be conformed to this world. The world says that X plus Y equals Z, but God says you may have committed X. You may have walked in Y, but Z is going to be my blessing. The better word spoken. Somebody come and play the keyboards or something. I got to close this meeting, finish it up. You will only get this to the extent that you understand that Jesus is the king and that you are the kingdom. When you understand that he's the king and you're the kingdom, And that his glory is not just reflected in, but resting in his kingdom. You'll start to understand the the life that he's called you to live. Now, I don't want you to misunderstand me. The blessing of God in your life doesn't come down to the clothes you wear, the money in your bank account, or the car that you drive. But what it does come down to is you and I leading a big life. A big life. If according to Hebrews 3.3 in that beautiful quote from C.S. Lewis that we are the house that God is building for himself to inhabit, then it must be so that he's building one large enough so that only his power and wonder could fill it. The problem with shrinking the vision of your life down to what you're worthy of is you end up with a just enough mentality. Because most of us really believe that we're only worthy of just enough. The problem with a just enough mentality is just enough never, never met a need beyond the ones that were all about you. But that's not God's plan for your life. God wants to lead you into a a big life. Part of leading a big life means that you get really secure. Big people are secure people. Small people, they're insecure because they operate according to a scarcity mindset. They think that somebody else's blessing is to their detriment because there just simply isn't enough to go around. I can promise you that is not the mind of Christ. The hand of God on somebody else's life has never equaled his hand being lifted off of yours. Like a home stands strong on a secure foundation, so also you and I need to build our lives on the secure foundation that it is always God's intention to bless us. Never to forget about us, never to leave us out, never to move on or abandon us. How would any of those things speak to his glory? They wouldn't. So you gotta, you got to understand that just because God is doing something wonderful that somebody is getting breakthrough in their world, their success does not equal your failure. And if anything, their God-given success is glorifying Jesus, so it ought to be celebrated whether it's in their life or your own. Because ultimately what we're about is just ensuring that Jesus is getting all the glory. And that not to worry, he has a plan for you. So be a big person. Be secure. The other thing that I would say it means is that you understand there is, there is always to be room for one more person in the party that God is throwing in your life. Uh, God's response to us being restored to him is to throw a party. I don't know if you knew that. That's what God, he throws parties. You see that in Luke chapter 15, Jesus tells the parable of the lost sheep, the parable of the lost coin, and the parable, parable of the prodigal son. Three things that were lost, that were found, 
And in response, all three, the owners of the sheep and the coin and the father of the son, all three of them, they, they threw a party. They threw a really big party. And what you got to understand is that the party God's throwing in response to your salvation is not just about your life. The party is your life. It's all the good and wonderful things that God wants to do in and through you as long as you are walking with Jesus. That's the party. And of course, the intentions that you and I understand, there ought always to be room for one more person to be added to that party. So that whatever God is causing to abound in your life, whether it be a fruit of the Holy Spirit, like you're just walking in such unexplainable peace right now and you know it's not as a result of you, but the Holy Spirit is producing that that peaceful fruit in you. Well, you know that God's causing that to abound, not just so that you can enjoy it, so that just one more person can eat of that peaceful fruit and experiencing experience what you're experiencing. If it is some material thing that God has caused to abound in your world, you know it's not solely for you. It's so that just one more person can be invited into that experience and receive the blessing of heaven on, on your life. You see, the, the, the popular culture says no new friends. But the kingdom culture says there's always room for one more popular culture says it's just you and your small world and your circle and don't trust anybody because they're going to betray you and they're going to hurt you. That's a fearful way to live, ladies and gentlemen. The culture of the kingdom of heaven is there's always room for one more person to be brought into the party that God is throwing in my world so that what he's causing to abound would abound into them. But you're only going to live that way if you understand he's king and you're the kingdom. After all, he is the king who died the death of a sinner so that sinners could live the life of the king. That's the gospel. That's the great exchange. That's available to every person that you encounter. Thank you for joining us. For more information, please visit c3losangeles.com.